You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Today on the show, we are joined by Bill Beswick. Bill is an acclaimed sports psychologist, author of the new book, Changing Your Story, 20 Life Lessons from Elite Sports. Bill, what a pleasure. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Joe. Pleasure. So I figured that um, before we jump into this and into your book, which I loved reading, I figured it would be quite uh, quite important, I guess. So let's get some context perhaps about you uh you've worked at the top of elite sports for a long time how did you get into sports psychology well you say i've worked at the top i've also worked at the bottom as well so (laughs) i think i think we all start at the bottom and grind our way to the top um i was a player a basketball player manchester ymca as a kid not very good and graduated to coach the team, got better at coaching, coached the English national team five years. And it was when I was coaching at the highest level that I came across example after example of attitude in action, character in action, dominating talent. So I began to realize that I was selecting the five players on court for the end, the important end stage of the game based on character as much as talent. And that consumed me uh, and I got really interested. So I'd studied psychology at Manchester University. So I then decided on a career change, traveled to America quite a lot. They were probably 10 years ahead of us at the time and spent time with some very kind sports psychologists who shared their information with me. And then launch myself into an unsuspecting world of sport. When did uh, sports psychology become a, a big thing? Because as you said, it wasn't, re- it wasn't really an industry for it, uh, quite a while ago. When did it become the norm type of thing? Well, in 1995, when I started with Derby County, probably I'd done a little bit with Carlisle United before then, but that, was the pioneering days when players ran the other way down the corridor when they saw the sight coming. <laughs> um, and it, it took a while to persuade coaches, athletes, teams that paying attention to their mindset in performance was important. But we, we, I received a great deal of help because we were then, the Premier League at that time was getting an influx of foreign players. And they were far more attuned to sharing doubts, fears, anxieties. And the the British players saw them coming to see me, checked with them, what was it like, and then found it wasn't too bad. Um, And so it it began from then. Now I think it's it's a real growth industry in sport. You cannot imagine a top-class athlete now, performer, not having a sports psychologist on their team. Your book is called Changing Your Story, 20 Life Lessons from Elite Sports. Um, I read the book. I loved it. I love the premise of kind of changing a story. 
And I was thinking that kind of we all have these stories that we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves, I'll never be successful. I'm not as fast. I'm not as strong as that person. They'll, they'll never love me. We're never going to be a success, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I would love to know kind of uh, from your point of view, what are these stories that we tell ourselves and what does it mean to change one? I think our story begins to develop as we grow up. Um, our story at first is shaped by our parents, by our environment, uh, by the schools, teachers, key people in our lives, mm. uncles, grandmas, granddads. And somehow a story is created for us. But there comes a point in life where we have to take charge of our own story and decide what life we want. What do we, who do we want to be? What do we want to be? Where do we want to be? And I think that's a key moment some people never get beyond. They never get beyond understanding that their life story is their responsibility, their choice, and theirs to decide upon. They still rely on the other people to define it for them. Right, right. And you say in the book that uh, I think it was something like uh, the mind was the athlete and the body was the means. And I, I think that typically people just think about elite performance in whatever industry that is, just in terms of, I guess, the bodies. People, I guess, very rarely think about, you know, psychology unless they're at the top of these fields. So how powerful just is the mind in terms of achievement? Well, we can't move without our mind going into gear. So we get information from the external environment via our senses. Our mind makes the decision and we move appropriately. Our muscles just do the movement. Mm. But I understand what you say, Joe, in the sense that when we watch sport, we see the physical, technical, tactical output of right. sport. But what we don't see is underpinning that is the mental processes, the emotional processes going on. So you watch somebody, <clears throat> as we just have done, walk out for an Olympic final. That's what we're going to see is human doing, physical, technical, tactical. But there's a human being doing that, a human being. And that human being is full of doubts, fears, anxieties, because it's the Olympic final. Parents, family, friends, nations are watching the consequences of winning and losing the expectations of others, the distractions in the environment, all those have got to be dealt with by a mindset so that we can focus and deliver our very best performance. So once you understand that the mind is the athlete, the body, the means, and that the mindset you have underpins everything, then I think not just athletes, but all people will begin to pay more attention to choosing their attitude. What is my attitude today? Is my attitude that of a champion? Will I make today my masterpiece? Imagine if we woke up and decided today will be my masterpiece. What difference that would make to our day. Right, right. And I love that you talked about deciding that it's a choice that all too often we are at the whim of our circumstances we are at the whim of the person that cut us off in traffic of that argument mm -hmm. that we have we let the 
external factors decide our internal state and we forget that we have the choice to decide, right? Well, the key phrase there, Joe, is you cannot always choose the situation you find yourself in. Bad things do happen in life, Hmm. but you can always choose your response. Yeah, that I, puts you in. Once you understand that, that puts you in control of your life and does not allow the other situations to control you. You take control of your life. You can always choose your response. I love it. I love it. Um, when I was reading your book, I was thinking to myself, um, kind of the uh, importance of psychology and then genes, psychology and genetics, and. Um, I was thinking that obviously for a sport like, I guess, you know, basketball, that's uh, a sport where genetics clearly play, you know, a very big role in terms of height, in terms of speed, raw output. Um, but then I was also thinking about someone like uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, who's just, you know, made a, a return this weekend. And to me, that guy has what I would call a really bulletproof mindset. And mm. I would love to know, in your experience of the players you've worked with that have really made it to the top, uh, what what do you think matters more in terms of genes and, and the psychology? I think you need both. You need both. Um, and I think when you start your career, your genetic inheritance, your physical talent is so important. So as you, as you develop in the sport... 13, 14, 15, 16, your talent base drives you on. But slowly, the pressure on that talent base, on you as a person, is is increasing because you're moving from the innocence of childhood to the seriousness of adult competitive sport where expectations, consequences, the sideshow develops. And I, couldn't, I was just thinking then, Joe, Radhikana at, mm. at Wimbledon. She's, she's really enjoying the age of innocence. But the bit around the tennis is going to get enormous. At the moment, it's just about the tennis, that innocent view I'm a kid, I'm going out to play a game I love, I smile and enjoy it. It's wonderful to see. But unfortunately, in competitive sport and professional sport and international sport and media-driven sport, the world outside the performance becomes enormous. And all those pressures are stressing the athlete and they have to learn to deal with it. So I think... I I write about this 10 steps of pressure and you get to step seven and you're doing it on physical talent. And then suddenly there's a threshold and you are tested mentally and emotionally. Can you cope in the big arena? Can you cope under pressure? Can you recover from going a goal down? Can you move clubs to a famous club when you're 36 and expectations are enormous? Can you deal with it all? Can you deal with the medium, Miss Radicano? Can you deal with the commercialization of your performance? And so steps seven, eight, nine, ten become mindset. So I think at the higher levels of performance, 
mindset becomes the dominant factor. Can you cope? Well, and it's interesting because I was thinking about football players over the years that I grew up watching players like uh, Adele Tarapt comes to my mind, Ravel Morrison. These players with exceptional talent, but for whatever reason, they didn't have their psychology of an elite performance. So I completely agree that, as you say, there, there is a limit to the physical talent. And then to get to the elite stage, you need the, the genes and the psychology to get to the top. In one of the stories in the book I write about, the type of player I've dealt with. And players are a balance between talent and attitude. And obviously an A for talent and an A for attitude is enormous. Mm. Steven Gerrard, Roy Keane, Adam Peter, the swimmer. But I've also worked with an awful lot of B for talent, A for attitude. And and they have been very successful because although they're slightly less talented, less powerful, less fast, less skilled, they have a plus attitude and that drives them on. And the Premier League is full of B talent, A attitude players. But what you don't get is A talent, B attitude players. You can win with B talent but you can't win with B attitude because you'll never survive the competitive pressures of performance with a B attitude. Your attitude has to be spot on to play at the highest level. Right. And I, I personally find it um, like, I, I think that like potential and kind of what we're talking about by you about talent um do you find it a real shame when, let's say, you have someone with maybe an A for talent, but I guess maybe, you know, a C or a D in mindset, where if they really applied themselves, then they could go on and become something special. And that could be in any, I guess, here. It doesn't have to necessarily be in sports. But do you find that that is, you know, in some ways kind of like a tragedy where they, they have the genetic capacity, but kind of for whatever reason, the, the, the attitude is a C or a D. I agree with your word tragedy. It's a tragedy when human potential is unfulfilled. And it's a tragedy when some kid from a difficult background with great talent emerges, but nobody helps put the other things in place. And I talk in one of the stories about a young boy of 19 with great talent, but poor attitude who was brought to me by the football manager and said, you've got three weeks to get turn him around, otherwise he goes. So I was left with this kid stood in front of me, his head down, three weeks. So what we did was we did one thing a day for 21 days. So day one, he had to be in early. He was always late. So he had to be an hour early. And he, he an hour, he said. An hour early. I said, well, if you're not an hour early, I'll give you back to the manager. You're finished. He was there an hour early. Next day, haircut. Next day, dress smart. Next day, say good morning to everybody. Next day, be first on the practice field. Next day. At the end of 21 days, he changed completely. That's because he received some help in dealing with the mental and emotional aspects of his performance. And my 
I often, I often recall the tragedy of Paul Gascoigne, who was probably the most talented football player I've seen, but struggled with an off-the-field pressures. I would have loved to be in a position to help him. And I, I do think your point's good, Joe. The more sports psychologists we have in the profession, the more likely we are to have somebody near one of those athletes who can help them cope with the stresses and strains of life. Right. Right. And I was also thinking, um, because in the book you talk about the uh, about the importance of finding, you know, your why, about knowing why it is you should, what the impact it is that you want to have. And I was thinking back to a, a story about uh, Buster Douglas when he fought Mike Tyson and he was, you know, a, quite a, an average boxer by all means. And I believe that before he went into that fight that one of his parents had died and he kind of said, you know, at the end, this was my why. And it talked about the importance of having that. Um, and I was also thinking kind of, as you said, Blair, the importance of that kid, which you discussed, uh, and that kind of showed to me kind of that you were developing the habits that, you know, come in early. It's the importance of nutrition, about good psychological habits. And do you find that they both go hand in hand, the importance of having a why and the habits? Or do you think that you can get really far in life with great habits, but maybe not necessarily a strong enough why, if that kind of makes yeah, sense? Yeah, good question. No, good question. The answer is the why comes first. Mm. The why comes first. To performance at the highest level is difficult. If it was easy, everybody would do it. But it's what separates out people. What separates out people in life is how much. It, so when I see people that come to me as private clients, I ask three questions. What do you want? How much do you want it? And how badly are you willing to suffer? And, and the most important question is, what do you want? Establishing that why, what I want, and what this kid I, I talked about in my story, what he wanted was to be a professional footballer. And he did have a fantastic career. He just didn't have the tools to go with it. So I said, how badly do you want it? I want it really badly. How much are you willing to suffer? I will suffer. Right, you do what I tell you for the next 21 days. So the why comes before the habits, but the two things go together. You can't just have a motivation without the backup of the discipline to do the work. You have to have the motivation, and but you have to have the discipline to do the work. Right, right. I, I love that so much. And, and so often I've heard people say, you know, I, I want to do this. I want to go and build this business. <laughs> I want to have a great relationship. I want to do this and then... You know, when the time comes to, to have difficult conversations or to start cold calling, that, you know, they're down the pub. And, and I always think back to that Warren Buffett quote when he said, when the tide goes out, we'll see who's been swimming naked. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, so I love that, man. Um, I'd love to just kind of jump in. You say at the start, the first step is to accept responsibility for controlling your own destiny. There's no age limit to this. You can take yourself in a fresh direction at any point in your life. So does that mean that the starting point of change is to accept responsibility for you, your circumstances in your life? 
Yes, I, I, I feel it's fundamental. I, I feel that anybody who wants to achieve something in life has to accept that it's not going to be easy and that there will be difficulties and that it is our responsibility to deal with that, that journey, to deal with those difficulties, to deal with that situation. The more we blame other situations or other people, the more we seek to find excuses, the less committed we are to the journey we, we want to make. We find ways to deviate from the work, the pressure, the stress. So a lot of my work is taking young athletes or even teams back from excuses and blaming when they're in a bad situation, back to, I hear you, I empathize, but what are you going to do about it? Yours is the, you choose your attitude. You choose what you do each day. You choose what's your choice. So I do think that one of the problems we have in with our this generation coming through is that parents have been too loving. Parenting is a balance between tough and love. Too much tough is as bad as too much love. But we've actually had too much love. And so we have a generation of kids who cannot take personal responsibility, who look to their parents, who feel, who panic when they're not, when the parents aren't there as a protective force. And, and I think that's a, an issue we, that needs dealing with. And we need to, and I do with my own grandchildren, I make them take responsibility for little things, just little things, just to teach them. I, I won't help them. You try. And if you're in trouble, I'll come and help you. But you try first to do it yourself. Right, right. And I, I completely agree. I, I do think, and we, we've talked about this on the show, we've had many conversations that we've entered an era of coddling, you know, where even yeah. things like sports days, you know, you, you even last place gets a, a participation medal. And when you were saying that, it reminds me of a story that a friend um, told me who worked in like a residential home, a care home. And uh, he was told that basically if one of the service users dropped a fork on the floor and they are able to never pick that fork up for them if they can do it themselves, because it will condition them to enter a different mindset where suddenly they will expect for other people to do and they won't take responsibility for themselves. That's such a good story. Uh, and it's absolutely right. I, I have Parkinson's disease. And my wife has exactly that attitude. She will not do things for me. I have to find ways to do things myself, even though I'm finding it increasingly difficult. And what she's saying is that mental health is a question of being proud of yourself, committing to, to being the best you can be every day. Um, and overcoming difficulties. And I think it, it, it's that balance of tough love. My wife's taken a position as a carer. She's a brilliant carer. But she actually has taken a position more on the tough side because she needs to make me take responsibility for my day, my situation, to the best of my ability to keep that sense of strength and purpose and, and commitment to life. 
I love that. I love that. And, you know, I think that's a perfect example there of, you know, you choose your own fate. Like I remember in the book, you said that you have Parkinson's disease, but Parkinson's disease doesn't have you. And that the difference between uh, a victim and a fighter or a victor is a choice that we all get to make every single day. Yes, uh, so, so true. And I, I, I do love the story I tell in the book of Clint Eastwood playing golf. And his partner asked him, how old are you, Clint? He said, 88 on Monday. He said, 88 on Monday. How good is that? What are you going to do? He said, I'm going to start a new movie. He said, how do you manage? And Clint says, I wake up every day and don't let the old man in. <laughs> now, I think that's such an important phrase. You wake up in the morning and choose your attitude. It takes me sometimes 20 minutes to put my socks on. I can choose to let the old man in and say, oh, I'll stay in bed. I'll give up. Victim. Or I can choose to say, come on, Bill, get on with it. Keep going. Get dressed. However long it takes, get downstairs and become a fighter for the day. Get, make the most of that day of my, my life. Such an important thing, a day of your life. So I, I do think that basic understanding of taking responsibility, that you choose your attitude in life, stop making excuses, stop blaming other people, face up to yourself. That is a, such a powerful starting point to changing your story and having a positive, beneficial life. I love it, man. I love it. And, and you say um, in the book, you say you are the author of your own story. How do you want to tell it? Um, what I love about that story is that very often um, that when we're caught up in life, we're caught on this treadmill. We get distracted by the minutiae, by the paying bills, by the day-to-day stuff that every so often we forget to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. And we forget, as you say, that we have agency. If we're in an unhappy relationship, we can leave. If we're in a job that we don't like, we can choose to take a different direction in our career. We can move houses. We can change locations. We have that power, but we forget that. We forget we can do those things. Well, we do because the difference between high performers athletes and and ordinary members of the public is that the high performers have people around them to help them get off the treadmill, to think in in bigger terms, to reflect on their performance. Whereas Joe public in the street doesn't have anybody. And if you're in a bed sit in London as a young kid trying to make a career, you've got nobody to talk to. Now I, I call myself a thinking partner in the book. And the way I work with my clients is they come to me because they're on the treadmill and their ideas have got distorted and they're locked into a framework about themselves and about their difficulties. And I take them up in the helicopter. I give them a mental timeout. I take them away from the treadmill and say, come on, let's go up in the helicopter. Let's look at your life in general. And we start to paint a different picture. We start to change the story. Well, what do you want? How badly do you want it? 
how much are you willing to suffer? And suddenly we're off the treadmill and we're thinking, and, and uh, people are saying to me, well, I always wanted to do this, but I never really got the chance. I went into the factory and that was it really. I'm saying, well, do it. What's stopping you? Why can't you make a new plan of life? I mean, I was, I was 50 when I, I retired as principal of a college and started a sports psychology business. And I think this generation coming through will work in three or four jobs. I, don't, I, I think the, the old story that was painted for us of going in the factory at 16 and staying there till you're 60 is gone. And I think a lot of people are emerging from that story. They're looking at the, the, that story and saying, whoa, that's not for me. I want to make the most of my life. But to make the most of your life, you have to take responsibility. You have to get off the treadmill and, and you have to think. But it, it, I understand it is difficult for people. We get locked into some of its financial security, needing to stay in the job to pay the rent, to keep the family together. I understand all that. So it's not easy for some people, but it's still possible. I agree. I agree. Um, in the book, one of the things which I love you talk about was the um, importance of finding your why, of knowing why you want the things you want, of having that clarity. And we've kind of talked about it a bit today. If someone listening to this is kind of thinking, uh, you know, I'm not too sure what I want. Uh, you know, I, 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 I don't know, you know, how would you advise them where the beginning step is to, I guess, find their way? It's difficult if somebody has no clear concept, but no clear passion for anything. And so I suppose the only advice, most people I meet have got a starter passion for something. They have something they want to achieve and, and they're being blocked and we can unblock them. But if they've got no passion for anything, really, I, I, I talk about gaining a breadth of experience, dipping your toe in the water with a number of things, but not sitting at home watching a screen thinking, wonder what I should do with my life. What, you, you, that doesn't help you. You have to start something to, to trigger the, oh, this is good. Oh, I'm quite good at this. I'd like to be better at this. This is what I would like to do for them. So I can only advise them to get out from their home, experience life, put your toe in the water, try different things. How do you know until you've tried it? And hopefully they can come across something. Often, Joe, it's not something, it's someone. They join something, a, a club, whatever it may be, an art club, whatever. But there's somebody there, a teacher, who's inspirational, who they love. And that can be... When I went to the YMCA at 14, there were 56 sports available. I was a small, thin, city centre kid with a plastic bag with my pumps in and shorts and T-shirt coming off the street to join the YMCA, walking through six floors of the building with 56 sports and nobody spoke to me. Nobody spoke to me. And I got to the, the main hall, the, the gym, gymnasium, and there was a basketball session in process. 
and there was a tall Polish coach. And he saw me watching and he came over and said, do you want to join in? And those words changed my life. Those words changed my life. From then, I went to be a player, a coach, a gold medal winner, a sports a, a teacher, a lecturer in sports at university, a, a sports psychologist. Do you want to join in? I, but I put myself in the position by coming off the street to join the YM. I did something. I took that first step. So I encourage people, take the first step, engage in life. Right. And it's not as if, um, and what I love that you said was that it's an action, you know, it's a verb, it's something you learn by doing, by trying things. I, I don't know anyone that has ever sat in their bedroom and thought their way into a fulfilling <laughs> life, right? Like you, you learn these things by doing. And often what I found anyway in my own life is that the things which I've stuck at are not things that I was passionate about at the beginning. It was things that I kind of enjoyed and I, I thought I can get better at this. And then I developed the passion for it later. So I would love to ask you, what is the worst, I guess, the worst career advice that, that you hear given? Or is there any really bad things? Or what's the worst advice you hear given in your industry? That's a good question. I, I think it probably revolves around can't. When people are excluded, when careers advice people say, they, they put a box around somebody, a young person and say, you can do that, you can't do this. Mm. You're not suitable for that. You can only do this. So it, it, it's better now, but in the old days it was, if you were a certain academic level, you went to university. If you, if you were a lesser academic level, you went to college. You were a teacher. If you were a lesser academic level, you went into an apprenticeship. And I think the worst advice is to put a box around people because people are extraordinary. They can do unbelievable things. And I, I've always resisted trying to put a box around people. Pointing out obstacles, yes. Pointing out difficulties, yes, but saying, but these can be overcome if you want to. You can do anything, really. But you've got to commit to the discipline and hard work of getting there. Definitely. Definitely. I, I would um, love to ask you, um, because in the book, uh, kind of like what we talked about today, you mentioned in the book um, a guy called Chris, very talented player who kind of reached you know, a crisis point. You said he was looking for someone to blame, to cover up his mistakes. Uh, the guy wasn't trying very hard. And hearing that story got me thinking, in your line of work, uh, what would you say are the differences between the real elite athletes, the Steven Gerrards, the Roy Keens, you know, the Adam Peaties, you know, those, those people that really, really make it, and I guess the people that don't quite get to the top? Well, as we said before, it, sometimes it's a question of talent. But very often, in my experience, it's a question of mindset. Those three guys 
had enormously strong mindsets. I mean, so powerful. They turned up every day to practice like champions. There, there are various grades of practice. Um, so people sort themselves out when they come out to work. Some just turn up. Some turn up to train. They made somewhat of a commitment to put some effort in. Some turn up to compete. They're going to try harder. Some turn up to win. Now they're really working on the practice field. They're really building up the skills. But there's an elite few that turn up to dominate. And Stephen, Gerard, Adam Peaty, Roy Keane turn up every day to dominate. That's their characteristic. And that is championship characteristic. That's, that's what makes great players. I, th I think, as I said before, you, your talent only gets you so far. And then you've got to have the mindset to deal with the enormous issues of being a champion. It, 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 people don't realise, they think that just having talent gets you to the top. And it gets you near the top. Sometimes you can get to the top for a short while. But it's being able to manage being successful, being able to manage the expectations of others, the consequences of losing, the sideshow that develops around sponsorship. So I, I think that's, I would say, the, the, the fundamental difference between a champion and a runner-up is that while both may have talent, the champion will have the mindset to be a champion, to deal with the issues, to deal with the defeats, the setbacks, the heartaches, and still stay in the ring, still get up from the floor, fight back. What was it like working with Roy Keane? He's a man I'm, I'm very interested. I love seeing him. <laughs> <laughs> I love seeing him on Sky Sports. <laughs> what was it like working with, with uh, Roy Keane? Challenging, because he challenged everybody. He was brilliant. I mean, I loved him. He, he was, he made every around him 10% better because he would not accept mediocrity. He would tell you the truth. I called him the ultimate truth teller. Um, part of my job is truth telling, but I never did it as well as Roy. <laughs> if you played poorly, he would tell you. If you weren't making an effort, he would tell you. And as a result, you began to play for Roy. You began to play to his standards because he didn't want that. So I was at Manchester United for two years and I saw the impact he had on the players around you. You'd go out for practice and sometimes with the best one in the world on a Manchester Tuesday morning when it's raining and the clouds are the sky is black and it's cold, it's freezing. You don't really feel like putting the effort in. But Roy would go out there and his standard would be 100%. No excuses. No excuses. Adam Peter goes to the swimming pool at six o'clock in the morning and trains like a champion. No excuses. Stephen Jarrod goes on the field, plays his heart out. No excuses. So I think there are people who have that mindset, that no excuse mindset, drive themselves to being a champion. I, I tell you what I love about that story is that 
Um, on this show, we've talked very often about the difference between the professional and the amateur. And we've kind of come to the conclusion that, you know, passion, in some ways, we find it to be overrated. Like, you know, if you go to get knee surgery, I, I don't want, you know, uh, a knee surgeon halfway through the procedure to go, oh, well, I'm just not passionate about this anymore. You know, and I, I'm going to go and try something else. But what I love about what you said but there about Roy Keane and uh, Adam Peaty and Steven Gerrard, was that that was their standard, right? The, they, they turned up whether they felt like it or not. They, you know, that was just who they were. That was the standard that they set for themselves. Yeah, they had that characteristic. Um, and, and the other factor about all three is they don't care about what other people think about them. Mm. They only care what they think about themselves. That takes a lot of pressure off. A, a lot. One of the greatest pressures that causes people to lose their way is the expectations of others. They finish up playing for the parents or playing for the crowd or playing for the media. Whereas those three set their own standards. And the only time they were upset was when they lowered their own standards, when they didn't meet their own expectations. That gave them, well, it's fireproof because the media could say what they liked, the fans could do what they liked. But they were locked in. Did I do everything I could to make that a great performance? And I think that's, that's a very, very tough quality. Who would be the athletes in the world that you look at that perhaps maybe you didn't work at, uh, with, but you would have loved to have worked with them, I guess, to you know, to understand the psychology more. Are there any that come to mind? Well, Gascoigne, I know he was a previous era, but he's my era, so I'm sorry about that. He's just, he's just the one I felt, I felt, to use your word, it was a tragedy mm. that he didn't get the help he gave. But there, there are people now that uh, I would like to advise um, but there, there are more people around like me now. So there's some very good sports psychologists working around the place. And I think that there's more help available. Um, the characteristic of the ones that I think, gosh, I would like to work with them are really the talented ones that fail for character. And I just felt that I came from a working class background. I know what it's like not to have people in your family who can advise and help you and, and stretch that. And, and you're moving into a new world when you, your talent takes you into a new world. And there's nobody can, nobody can talk to you about it. Nobody can help you. So you stumble along. And then you find the people who come to your side are the ones that want a share of the money. Very often our young athletes are, are, are fine kids but the people around them are not so good. And that, that's a destructive factor as well. So really, I, I, I suppose a sports psychologist wants to help those with good talent, but difficulties in terms of attitude and character. I love it. I love it. Um, one of the things which I've been thinking about today, reading your book and uh, speaking with you, is that elite athletes, they're kind of unique in the sense that they 
uh, a kind of in like a really sped up position of what everyday ordinary life is because if you lose a football game, you have to deal with all the psychological factors with that. I find that people kind of outside there, uh, I feel like there's kind of a reluctance to put pe- to put themselves in a position to fail. You know, they won't take an exam because they could fail. They won't enter a relationship because they could fail. Um, but what I love about, I guess, elite sports and why I, I, I really love watching it is because they have to deal with all of the things that comes with that. And in the book, you were kind of talking about emotional mastery, the importance of uh, really navigating your own psychology of dealing with imposter syndrome, of dealing with the setbacks, the failures, the heartaches. Are there any ways that you found that we can begin to uh, master our own emotions? I like your phrase there, navigating your own psychology. I think that that's really what the book is about. It's about taking control of your mindset, taking control of your attitude, making the right choices. Um, And I think that all the 20 lessons of the book were very carefully chosen for my career to illustrate 20 strategies for navigating your own psychology. So the start would be take responsibility, find your why. And you've mentioned one of them, control your emotions, because that can put you off balance. So that's in in, in a, in a, I say sport is emotion, is motion. Sport is emotion, not just motion. We see sport on that we watch United on a football field or we watch Chelsea or we watch a Connectly Rugby Club and we see motion. But there's an awful lot of emotion involved and that emotion needs controlling. When Adam Peaty walked out in Rio five, six years ago for the Olympic final, he had 57 seconds to define his life because that's the amount of time it would take to win a gold medal. And that is a very emotional thing to face. But he learned to use the power of his emotion, but then lock it away and let his mindset take over, let his discipline take over, let his rationality take over, understanding his race plan. One of the ways we I do that is to have little sequence thinking cards. So in certain situations, I have a card which trains my mind, diverts it away from the emotion and puts it into performance mode. So I call it a trigger card. A lot of players use this now. And so in in an emotional state, they're about to go and perform at Twickenham and they look at their trigger card and it says, today is my day. Mistakes will not deter me. This is where I want to be. Today is my day. And so, and so on. And so that's a strategy for getting your mindset in gear. If you find your emotions are running away with you, I use the traffic light strategy. I talk to players about what does it mean to be in red, to see red? And the players will start to list things. I lose control. I do stupid things. I get yellow cards. I get second yellow cards. I forget my responsibilities to the team and so on and so forth. And I say, do you want that? 
do you think that's helpful? Do you no, I don't want that bill. Well, would you like to be in green? Talk about when green, when, you when you're driving along, you see a green light. Oh, I feel good. I'm in flow. Everything's working quite well. I'm on time. I'm, I'm getting the job done. I'm at my best. Uh, so green's lovely. So if you like being in green, you don't want to be in red, what's the value of amber? Amber's a warning bill that I'm going to go from green to red. Ah, so what do we do when we get an amber? Go back to red. Can we go back to green? Avoid red. So then we, our, our strategy is discussing tactics, strategies that suit the individual for recognizing amber and going back into the green. So all these things, I mean, they're very simple, Joe, very simple, straightforward strategies. But if nobody's talking to you about them or nobody's helped to explain them to you, you're lost. As soon as you see them and get some structure in your life and start to think, well, I've got this strategy or that strategy, discipline, control, emotional control, you're fine. It's very helpful. And I like to keep it simple. Because I think in life, if you've got a complex strategy, you'll avoid it. If you've got a very simple one. So one of my players in the Premier League wears two elastic bands around their wrist. And every time they see them going, going to amber, they snap the elastic bands and it takes them back into green. How simple is that? But how effective in the heat of the moment, in the heat of battle? Right. And I think it was Tony Robbins that said, complexity is the enemy of execution. And it shows the <laughs> it shows the Very benefit good. there, yeah. But man, I really love um, reading your book. Uh, just start to, I guess, kind of wind down now. And I just love to ask you. Uh, so you wrote a fantastic book. Uh, what books have you read in your life that have uh, impacted you, Bill? Oh, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a prolific reader. I, I, I studied English and Hemingway, was Graham Greene. Uh, I read, I read so many, and I, I, I look at, I'm looking now at my library, um, and there's just so many. Um, Bill Walsh, "Let the Winds Come to You." I, I like books by great coaches, and his his concept, "Let the Winds Come to You," is is a very straightforward concept. You may want to win but there's nothing you can do about it. There's, you may want to win in life. You may want to pass A-levels, GCSEs, but there's actually nothing. Dreaming about it, thinking about it is, is okay, that's good. Now, forget it. The only thing you control in life is what you do today. If you want to pass an A-level in four weeks' time, study excellently today. Then study excellently tomorrow. Then study excellently the day after, and that A-level will come to you. I once saw a girl get a girl athlete uh, get interviewed. She'd won two gold medals at Beijing and she had the gold medals around her neck. And the interviewer said, well, you've chased these for four years. And she said, stop. I've not chased these. I trained six hours a day and they came to me. And I, I said to my wife, we were watching, sat by the fire watching the six o'clock news. And I said to my wife, that is bloody magnificent. <laughs> and then, then he said to her, but what sacrifice? She said, stop. She said, I made no sacrifice. I chose to train six hours a day. I said, I love this girl. I love this girl. <laughs> so uh, 
the energy bus, confidence, Bill Walsh, let the winds come to you. Uh, there's just so many. Uh, I'm reading one uh, any uh, expert by Roger Kneebone at the moment. That's lovely. He's a, he's a surgeon at the Royal Imperial uh, in London. And he's written a book on experts. And I, I'm just loving it. Um, Bree Brown. I, I, just, I just love books. I think I hesitate to nominate particular books because I get something from every book. Everybody's got something good to say. But if you want my favourite all-time book for... Is the old man in the sea in the same way? I love it. I love it. Um, I got one last question for you before I ask you to sign off and tell these guys where they can uh, connect with you and tell them about where they can get the book and whatnot. And the last question, which we ask at, all, at the end of all of our podcasts, is what makes a life worth living? Knowing you've made a difference. You've, you've made a difference for good. I mean, I'm in my legacy phase now. And I think you have to come to terms with the fact you, you're going off stage. I once heard a Maori speak about life and saying, we're a long, unending session, an unending succession of people going through life. Some are in the dark, have not got there yet. Then they come into the light. Then they come into the sunshine, they have their life. Then they go into the half light. And then you leave the stage so that other people can come on. And I think if, as I prepare to leave the stage, not quite yet though, Joe, as I prepare to leave the stage, I think I would like to think I've made a difference in helping society and individuals live a better life. I love it. I love it. And I think one of the ways in which you've definitely done that was through your book, which I know is going to help so many people. So where can these guys uh, connect with you and then where can they get the book? Well, it, it's, it's out now. Penguin published it. It's, it's in, I hesitate to say it, but it's in that major dot-com company that people get. <laughs> um, but even more importantly, it's in book, it's in booksellers. I, I, I believe in supporting the bookshops. So I love, a, I love a bookshop. When my wife forces me into shopping, she can go into wherever she goes into, and I go into the local bookshop and spend an hour or two there. I love bookshops. So... It's very available, but you can get it from that dot-com company that sends it out quite quickly. We will uh, post the it, link. It's to, also on audio. Also on audio. We will, we will post a link to said dot-com company in the description. So, Bill, this was a real, real pleasure, man. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I'm really grateful for your time and for your, the fabulous work which you're doing and for writing the book. Man, it was a real pleasure for me, so thank you for coming on. Thank you, Joe. I enjoyed it. Take oh. care.